This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. MPB Think Studio, Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your Southern Remedy program that you can call into with any type of question that you might have about the health of yourself or maybe somebody in your family, new medications, new symptoms, new diagnoses, you can call in right now. Also, uh, if you're not able to call in today, we always like to receive your emails. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. I've got a question for you to start us out. We're going to put you on the spot here a little bit. All right. <laughs> we used to call that stump the chomp. So <laughs> I think Dr. DeShazo said that too. So. <laughs> Actually, it's an opinion question. So um, if you watch TV, again, as maybe as much as I do, there seem to be an awful lot of these commercials that are, you know, advertising this medication, that medication, and everybody's singing and dancing and having a great time. And they want you to go ahead and, you know, tell your doctor about this. So as a healthcare professional, what do you think about sort of the explosion of drug advertisement? Do you think it's good for, uh, for doctors and patients? Yeah, we, we call that direct-to-consumer advertising. So, uh, And it has, it's quite different than when I started training. Um, there were still some commercials about that your health and different things, but particularly for medications, both for prescription medications and maybe some non-prescription medications with a lot of claims. Um, I give... I used to give a professionalism talk for years to our medical students about this. And one of the things I think that everybody has to keep in mind is that there are there's a difference in what you hear on the TV and the motivation and the goals there. Like obviously we the reason it's direct to the consumer advertising is because they're trying to sell their product. And it might be a great product, but that's not their primary goal is to treat a patient. Their primary goal is to sell a product. And their motivations for that and the way in which they do that, and even some of the ways that they present the information or claims, you know, there's always sort of fine print or somebody's talking really fast like a used car dealer uh, about all the the details there at about six times the the normal speed. Um, So you do have to be careful with that. That being said, I personally, my personal opinion, a lot of physicians hate this and they're like, you know what, this this creates a lot more uh, distrust um, of the relationship that we have with our patients because it sometimes creates some scenarios that there may be some very good reasons why they would not need that drug that's presented that way, Um, or maybe it would. I... I think it's it's good and bad. I think it's bad for those reasons I just stated that um, it it does create sometimes uh, that individual to come in almost demanding sometime or saying, you know, why don't you have me on this? The commercial says that I need to be on it because I have all these all these uh, criteria. 
but also uh, it is good sometimes. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times in 25 years of practice where I've had a patient who, uh, because somebody else had a cancer diagnosis, it prompted them to get something done. Uh, or maybe they heard some information through whatever means, and even a commercial, that they needed to get something checked out or they needed to be on a medication. And it has prompted those conversations. So I tend to look at it through that lens, that this is just another way that patients are prompted to talk about things that are important to them, that they have questions about, um, and that may be uh, potentially impacting them personally. And most of the time, I, I have found that, that patients, you know, they appreciate those instances where I would say, you know, I really don't think this medication is for you because of this. And I, you know, even I've sometimes they'll come, particularly with some of the, the uh, over-the-counter or uh, over-the-counter medications or some of the uh, supplements that you see sometimes on TV. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge of that, but then I, I usually respond you know, let, let me look at that, and I'll see if it may interact with what you've got going on, see if it's safe, see if it's, um, if it's efficacious. In other words, does it work or not? Do we have evidence to suggest that? But I like the conversations, and maybe that comes with a little bit more maturity. As a younger physician, I didn't always have the patients that I had, and I hope it didn't come – I hope it wasn't that transparent uh, with my patients while I was in the room. But um, – Anything that can prompt a discussion that's going to help the patient uh, with their personal things that they're going through or in, in an understanding. And if you think about it, uh, Southern Remedy exists for the same reasons, to try to get information out there that can help other people. Although I'm not acting as a physician directly with the patient, we try to get that information out there to, to answer those questions and point people in the right direction. So. As always, excellent question from our producer, Kevin Farrell. He always has great questions that uh, uh, can prompt further discussion. So uh, thanks for that. We're going to go to Chad from Meridian. Good morning, Chad. Uh, yes, sir. I just want to ask you about, like, hair growth products, like the regrow hair, like, like Biddle's Peak. Yeah, like Propecia um, and some of the other ones like that. Yes, sir. And also, I have a lot of bad scarring, like, I'm only losing hair like on the one side on the widow's peak. I, I'm guessing it's a lot of, I have a lot of scarring. Um, uh -huh. Maybe it. Yeah, you know, hair loss is is caused by a number of different things, and uh, there's a long list of them. And even sometimes I have to send patients to the dermatologist to sort of tease out the why behind that. You know, you've got more common things like male pattern baldness that has to do as we age with the influence of, of uh, testosterone and other hormones on hair follicles on our scalp. Um, there are all kinds of, you can do direct damage to hair follicles and Certainly, if you have scarring for any reason, um, a lot of patients will have had infections in their scalp, uh, sometimes chronic fungal infections or bacterial infections or direct trauma to the scalp will damage those hair follicles and they won't be able to regrow hair. The, the couple of different medications that are effective in regrowing that um, are uh, things like Rogaine, and uh, Rogaine or Minoxidil is a uh, is a medication that you directly apply to the scalp itself. It's actually a um, older blood pressure medication, and uh, one of the side effects, if you take it by mouth, is hair growth. So people had they noticed that they had a lot of uh, of hair growth growth from that. Um, 
but uh, that is that is one thing that you can uh, you can use, and, and that's actually for for men and women. Um, you do have to be careful; it can be absorbed through the skin, and it can actually lower your blood pressure a little bit. But that's one topical thing. The downside is you have to keep applying it for it to continue to work. And again, if it's in an area that's been damaged, and not knowing the full extent of that scarring that you have. Um, you know, it may or may not work in that area. The other medication that's commonly used is Propecia, and Propecia sort of blocks that hormone, that male hormone, uh, that sort of induces that process of of the hair follicle to quit making uh, the the cuticle, the hair itself. So um, that's one that's a pill. Um, you do have to be very careful with this one, particularly in younger children, so they can't even touch this medication. Um, it's very toxic to them uh, or pregnant women. So, uh, but both of those have shown, you know, sort of mild to moderate hair regrowth in individuals. The hair sometimes can be a different texture when it comes back in. But it, from the from the comments that you had about the description of some scarring. That may be something that you can't regrow hair in that area just because of the damage to the follicles, but you probably need somebody who's very experienced with that, like a dermatologist, to take a look and say, you know, I, or even just giving you a trial of that, um, you know, for, for three or six months. These aren't These things aren't fast either. You can't make hair grow back faster than it would normally grow. So if you think about that, you know, most of the time, if you have an area that's totally devoid of hair, that's going to be a lot harder to grow that back, and it's going to take months to do that. Also, the earlier you catch this process, particularly male pattern baldness or, um, or um, you know, hair loss in women that's similar to that, it, it, it works a lot better if you catch it earlier and treat it. So sometimes if you wait too late, it's it's sort of... You, you waited a little bit too long for that. So hopefully that answers your question, Chad, and uh, good luck to you. Okay. If you haven't seen anybody about that, I probably would get them to get you to a, a dermatologist just to take a look if you haven't already seen them. Okay, okay thank you so much. I love you all, Chad. Oh, thank you, Chad. Thank you for listening, and thank you for calling. Let's go to Wilma from Memphis. Good morning, Wilma. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I yes, want your opinion on having cataract removed when you have macular degeneration. Oh, that's a great question. So, uh you just uh, it sounds like you probably already know the the details of this. So, two different conditions that you're talking about there in the eye. One is uh the more common one is uh development of cataracts, which are lenses that help us to focus light that is coming into our eye on the back of the retina, which is really the the cells that transmit that into an image that the brain interprets. Uh, Over time, that lens can become hard and it can become cloudy. And if it becomes cloudy, um, if it becomes hard, that's usually the loss of accommodation and, and you're not able to focus as much, particularly on objects that are near to you. Uh, like if you're reading a book. But the cloudiness can sometimes cause cataracts, and a lot of people, the first symptom they'll have is they'll drive at night and they'll say that they see these these bright lights or uh, uh, almost like star-like formations, uh, particularly when when, uh, bright lights are coming at them like a a car that's uh, coming down the road. 
And typically that is an easy operation. It's gotten very, a lot more technical than it used to be 30 years ago, um, but uh, they, where they remove that lens um, and they replace it with another lens. And usually it corrects your faraway vision. Uh, you still, usually it's it sort of fixed though. It can't focus like your, your original lens is. So you'd have to use glasses to read. Macular degeneration is the macula is the part of the eye that's very dense and it has our focus, our fine focus of vision. So when you look directly at something, it's really the macula that uh, is that part of the eye, the, of the retina on the back of the eye. And for, for some reasons that we know about and others that we don't, those cells can degenerate over time and uh, you have loss of your central vision. Uh, a lot of times your peripheral vision can be um, saved with that or spared. And there are some ways that they treat that now. There's some injections into the eye itself uh, and other medications to help slow that process or, or in some instances reverse it. But um, but it's a good question that, that Wilma brings up though is do you really need to get the cataract removed if you have macular degeneration that you're, it's still going to be impaired there? And that's a tough decision to make. And I, I would say it depends on the the amount of, uh, of visual loss that you have from the macular degeneration. And they may not be able to assess that completely because of that cataract. And even if it gives you an increase in your peripheral vision with the cataract removal, that, that might be worth the risk. And again, these are it, typically a cataract surgery these days is a pretty low risk procedure to have for most people. You'd want to make sure that your physician is individualizing that risk for you, um, you know, before you, before you go through with it. But just keep, you just kind of have to keep in mind that you may not receive much improvement with that. And you may not even know what, what improvement in your vision you might get until after you had it done. Because of, again, it's like you're looking through that lens and it's cloudy. So it would be like, you know, something cloudy in front of your eyes plus the fact that the back of the eye is not interpreting that light like it should. So it is sort of a double hit to the eye and you really don't know what kind of benefits you would get. Is your ophthalmologist, is that sort of the picture they're painting or are they sort of leaning towards one or the other? He's against having the cataract removed. He says yeah. it can crumble and get caught, I'm not sure he said where it gets caught, and would I'd end up blind. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I, you're, you're my second opinion, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, I would probably get a third opinion, too, from another ophthalmologist who is a retina specialist, and those are a okay, little bit... Yeah, they're they're a little bit rare, but they there are enough of them out there. And the reason I say a retina specialist is because they need to know about the impact on the macular degeneration. And I'm not an eye doctor, so yeah, from a retina specialist. So yeah, I I might get another opinion on that just to make sure. But if they say the same thing, I don't think I would I would do it either. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Always enjoy your show. Thank you. I appreciate you listening and definitely for calling, too. Let's go to William from Hattiesburg. Good morning, William. Hey, how you doing this morning? Good. What's your question today? All right, this is a question I have. You know, a person that's old, 
when they used to go to the barber shop, uh-huh. when they give you the white walls around the ear with a right straight razor, yeah. they had a <laughs> habit of shaving your ears. And, <laughs> yeah. and I have a few wild hairs, hairs growing on my ears because yeah. of that. And I wondered how you can get rid of that, stop it from growing. Yeah, there are a couple of ways, not just on the ear, but, uh, you know, as we get older, too, even if it wasn't shaved when you were younger, uh, even I have noticed, hairs grow out of strange places, and they are rather aggressive and very proud of themselves in their consistency. So (laughs) um, there are different ways. We call this depilatory agents. So in other words, this is something that's going to destroy that hair follicle. So earlier on, we had a caller, you know, that was just the opposite thing. There are some things that can do that, and there's different ways you can do it. Some of them are are stimulation of the hair follicle by electrical current. So it is a gradual current, and a lot of people use this, too, to uh, help with excessive sweating. Uh, There are some medications that they can inject into the site. You can directly remove, if you remove the whole hair follicle, not just the hair, then that'll take care of the problem. But you sort of have to balance that out with the destruction of tissue, uh, you know, in the area. But a dermatologist, again, uh, we're giving a lot of, uh, giving a lot of, um, of business to them today, I think. That would be the person I would go to and say, hey, can you get rid of this, these these hair follicles right here and um, there's a lot of ways that they could do that in in a similar fashion you know they use both heat and cold uh, extremes of heat and cold to sometimes take care of some benign precancerous things like there's things like actinic keratoses and actinic uh, seborrheic keratoses those two things or sort of precancerous, sometimes those little rough spots, that's that, those AKs and the seborrheic keratoses are more waxy. But a lot of times they'll freeze those off. And in the same kind of fashion, those little hair follicles, though, are, are, they're, they're pretty deep, but sometimes you can do enough damage to them where they, they stop producing the, that hair. But they may, be, they may be able to do that. You do want to be a little bit careful in some ways. You know, they may look at it and say, uh, we may not want to do it here because if you damage the upper portion, you might can get an ingrown hair in that in that tissue. So uh, if it doesn't have anywhere to come out, so but I would I would ask them about it, and they they can probably do that um, in a way that could could get you a little bit of a uh, little help with that. Hey, I heard you could have have electrolyte electrolysis, but they yeah, tell me you got to do each hair follicle. Well, it's uh, it, could, it really does more of the area, I think. So, yeah, that's that electrical stimulation I was talking about before. Yeah. And did nobody get – I just have to say this because I've had patients sometimes they, they'll be like, hey, I, I heard somebody say this and I tried it out. Don't hook up your battery at home or, you know, any kind of contraption to yourself to put some electrical current through there. Please yeah. don't do that uh, because this is totally different electrical currents that are going through there um, that, that need to be medically um, supervised. So, but yeah, I'd, I'd go to a dermatologist and see what your options are. They're probably going to have about three or four different options that they can discuss with you, and then you can maybe try one of those. Yeah, you said something about the depilatory. Like De- depilatory. De- yeah, depilatory agents. Yeah. So you can get just, that at a drugstore? 
Well, you can, but they're not going to work too well. You know, they, they work well for other things, like like the things you buy for, like, wart removal, for instance. If yeah. you use enough of it and the wart's a flat wart and it's not that um, it's not that big, eventually that, you know, you can you can get rid of it. But that doesn't really work the same way with the hair follicles because they're so deep. They actually are pretty deep in the in the skin itself. So right. it's... It's not going to penetrate you, down low enough to do that, to destroy them. All right, before you hang up on me, there's a, I, I, I listen to a lot of news reports, and they were talking about these transgenders in the military. Huh? They, they were getting hair uh, removal treatment at taxpayers' expense when they could change their gender from uh, male to female. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be some way that taxpayers are paying for Hair removal. You've heard of that? I, I'm not aware of the the funding for that or the politics of it, but it's the same type of techniques that you'd use. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of conditions, medical conditions, where women grow facial hair yeah. and uh, in a male pattern. And, um, you know, both cosmetically and, and socially, there's a lot of ways to, to get rid of that, too, in the same kind of fashion. So it, doesn't, it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if they're using the same techniques. But, um, yeah, I'm not aware of, the of you know, how that's being funded or, or how they're doing that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. By the way, if you miss our program or maybe you're just coming in right now and you want to hear what we said beforehand sometimes we allude to things that are earlier in the hour you can always download us on your favorite podcasting app just search for southern remedy and you can listen to us at your leisure to and from work wherever work out at the gym um, but uh, you can uh, do that, or you can go to our website, mpbonline.org, and you can uh, listen to programs online. I know a lot of people listen to us uh, directly online through the MPB app, uh, some of them even uh, across the ocean. So we've had a couple of people call in, I think one from Brazil from time to time and, uh, and other places. So you can always – there's all kinds of different ways you can uh, contact us and listen. Let's go to Ela from Memphis. Good morning, Ela. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks for calling. I feel like I should ask a dermatologically related question, but I don't have one. So. <laughs> you know, that's the best thing about Wednesdays is you can just uh, you don't have to stay on topic. You can go to a different one. We don't really have a single topic very often. So we uh, will move to gastro. Um, so my husband has um, ulcerative colitis, I believe. Yes. Uh huh. Ulcerative colitis. Uh huh. And the doctor prescribed Humira. Well, I don't know how well you know or anybody on you know listening knows, but this is a medication that costs about twenty thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah. And so insurance only covers about half. And there's this, you know, they connected us to this program through this company that paid the other half. I did my research, and it turns out the company is the pharmaceutical company that manufactures the product. Yep. And it's just, it's, you know, and it just, I didn't, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, to be honest with you, because it is, after the first two months of him getting his medication, and boy, is it life-changing. You know, it yeah. may very well yeah. be worth money, but, you know, well, let's not go there. But um, anyway, so they called and said, oh, we ran out of money. I'm like, how does a company that makes 
$60 billion a year run out of money. But, yep. you know, anyway, I guess my question is, what's the what? You know, like, I have no words. Like, maybe this is more of a vent than anything else, but I just, I don't understand. Like, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff until this all happened. And right. now we're, like, with another person, with another party trying to pay for it, and it's just... He hasn't had his medication in, in like two months now, and it just it just doesn't seem right. Yeah. That is a tough situation that, unfortunately, some of my patients have gone through similar things. And uh, a lot of the medications that we use for autoimmune diseases, which this would be one of them, ulcerative colitis, it's a, in, uh, one of the types of inflammatory bowel diseases, uh, some of the cancer medications, um, a lot of these medications can be extremely expensive, and it doesn't you know, surprise me with the, I was aware of how much Humira would cost if you're, if you're having to buy it yourself. And unfortunately, across the board, when you talk about different insurances and, and payments of that, it's, it's dramatically different. Like some insurance companies would pay for it, some would not, uh, depending on the plan. And unfortunately, that can change with time too. We've seen a lot of that uh, where you you may qualify for six months to a year, and then after that, they you you might not qualify anymore. And it's almost always at the mercy of the of the insurance. Uh, you're also right that a lot of these drugs are so expensive that a lot of questions have always come up about, well, um, why is it so expensive? And Thankfully, a lot of these uh, drug companies do have these patient assistance programs where they have a limited number of funds that they put into it so that they, you know, patients like yourself, uh, like your husband can uh, can be treated. But sometimes those change, too. And certainly there's a lot of questions being asked of pharmaceutical companies. You know, why, why do we have the problem with, with medications? And there may be legitimate reasons for that. Some of these medications are very hard to make. Um, even if they've been out for a long period of time. But um, I would keep asking about it. And one of the things about inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis is there may be a similar medication uh, that your physician may think is would give similar results. Um, and, uh, again, Humira, is a, it's a very common. It's a tumor necrosis factor uh, alpha inhibitor. And uh, it's used for a number of, of inflammatory conditions like um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, psoriasis, and, uh, and, and uh, inflammatory bowel disease. But there may be some other things out there that it would be covered. We're fortunate enough in our clinic to have a pharmacist that is in our clinic. Um, and one of the things that she brings to the table is trying to work with insurance companies, work with third-party payers to do that. Sometimes local pharmacists will do that too, where you get your medications, you know, other other medications, including this one, and they might can uh, can help with other options and working with your physician about that. But it takes a lot of work. Um, I signed some papers this week uh, for some paperwork for a medication for one of my patients. And it's taken us a couple of weeks just to sign the paperwork for it and to get the right information just so that they can get it. So it it, it is a huge problem with trying to sort of jump through these hoops with medications that are very effective for patients. Um, and unfortunately, it takes a lot of time and effort. And uh, 
I would I would use everybody as a resource. So whoever prescribed it, you know, their office, they may have some social work um, um, uh, individuals there uh, or case managers or pharmacy that they can utilize to try to try to get the medication for you or maybe an alternative one. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. I hope they get good luck to y'all on that. Y'all don't give up on that. Y'all press forward with it because sometimes it can just take, it just takes a lot of time. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening today and for our callers that have called in so far. Plenty of time to call in for the rest of the hour. You can reach us right now with any type of question that you might have. You probably have heard that people, uh, humans, are creatures of habit, and we are. There are all kinds of different things, uh, little habits that we establish. And a lot of times we forget that those habits were established, and we just sort of take it for granted and say, you know, I've always been like that, and that's the way I'm going to be. There is a lot of truth to that, but there's also a lot of truth that at one point in your life, you were not like that, and you did develop that habit. And even things that you have been doing for decades, there's always an opportunity for change. And I say this on February 21st, just to remind everybody that um, to hang in there with any type of resolutions that you have. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners, they uh, they observe Lent, too, during, uh, during that season that they have given up something and uh, – just remember, you do have some control over that. You do want, need to think about the things that sort of motivate you to be triggered on those things. And that can be, uh, you know, bad habits that you've established, uh, maybe smoking, uh, excessive alcohol. It might be the lack of something, like uh, maybe you're a couch potato and not someone who um, who exercises a whole lot. But you can make some small changes that can affect your health in lots of different ways. So I just wanted to say that as an encouragement, not to throw any guilt on anybody, that uh, you can change those things over time. certainly helps to have some support. Uh, a peer group that can help you and support um, is very useful. Um, think about the ways that you like to hear that. I know a lot of people, and one of my patients recently got a Peloton to increase his physical activity, and uh, he said he likes uh, whatever program that's on there. I'm not really familiar with it, but you can uh, apparently they'll yell at you while you're you're doing your workout, and he loves that. Uh, for other people, that may not be the way to uh, to get that feedback, but um, uh, find something that works for you. Do a deep dive into some of the things that motivate you. Uh, towards change in a positive direction, and it's never too late to do that. You know, uh, we've got lots of data to support that in just about every kind of lifestyle change that you can make. You can improve your health in the short term and long term in doing that. doesn't matter what your age is either. Certainly, the younger you do it, the more effect it might have, but even some small changes can help out. Uh, so just an encouragement to uh, to pick something that works and that you can uh, establish as a new habit, and to uh, continue that over time. Let's go to Larry from Madison. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, I have, um, uh, my ophthalmologist told me, he did not say that I have glaucoma, but he said it was a high risk for it. Yeah. And I'm a senior citizen, and I wonder if you would uh, maybe explain a little bit about it a little bit about that to me, and also like if there are different methods of treatment for glaucoma. Sure. Yeah, glaucoma, uh, there's uh, uh, 
it is basically an increase in the pressure in uh, in your eye. So it's the in what we call the intraocular pressure. Um, but it's actually as the pressure increases, it actually damages the nerves to the eye. And there's uh, there's two different types. There's there's a type called closed angle and open angle. And uh, open angle glaucoma. Uh, there's a there's a, progr- a progressive loss of those those nerve cells, uh, and you can have uh, it, it can it can you can start to have symptoms with uh, like what we call visual field loss. In other words, different parts of where you uh, where you're looking can be blurry, or you can lose uh, um, it can be sort of sort of fuzzy uh, as you look at it. So, um, you know, angle closure glaucoma, it's a narrowing or closure of the, the um, uh, anterior chamber. So the anterior chamber is really that, that space between uh, your, um, um, in the, the, the central part of your eye, the, um, the cornea that overlays it. So if you look in your eye and you're looking at that, at the, the, there's a little bit of a bulge that's clear that you can see if you look at it from the side. That's sort of the anterior chamber. The posterior chamber is the actual back part of your eye. And fluid sort of flows in and out of those two chambers. And sometimes in closed angle glaucoma, it can, um, it can close up. And this type of glaucoma is usually much more... Um, uh, much more, um, it happens much more quickly. So you can be doing something, and particularly if you go to like a theater or uh, somewhere like that, it changes the way that, that angle of that little canal there between those two chambers, it can do uh, some damage. And you can have really a lot of pain with that too. Um, different types of um, of shapes of eyes. In other words, just like we have all kinds of different shapes of body parts, and some people are taller, some people are shorter, your eye can have different shapes too when compared to other people. So sometimes your eye might be shallower as you look at it. It might have a little bit different dimensions to it, and some types of changes to the eye itself um, can uh, put you at an increased risk for glaucoma. So that's probably what they're referring to with that. Um, and um, and and it might place you at some at increased risk. I'm one of those people, so I am extremely farsighted. So the 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 shape of my eye is a little bit different than other people, and it does put me at a risk of developing glaucoma over time as the lens in my eye gets stiffer. And because of that, some individuals have to get uh, uh, their lens replaced, like we had an earlier caller talk about um, talk about uh, cataracts. And uh, you might have to get your lens replaced because that's one of the, the surgical treatments of that. But there are also medications. Um, so there are a group of medications that are eye drops, basically, that you would put in your eye, and that's to help uh, decrease that pressure over time. So there are things called prostaglandins, which is a, a type of hormone that acts just in the eye itself to, to regulate that, that pressure. Uh, there's a blood pressure medication uh, that can do that too. Um, so there's lots of lots of eye drops that ophthalmologists prescribe and use for that. And it's you know the biggest thing is people need to be screened for this. So optometrists can can screen for it and ophthalmologists. And in the office, it's a, a very simple procedure where they have a little device that gets really close to your eye. And it uh, briefly either uses a, a puff of air or it touches the eye, the, just uh, just 
barely touches the outside of the eye to measure the pressure inside. Um, mainly, you just need to keep that monitored. And uh, if you have any really intense eye pressure, make sure you're seeing your eye doctor really quick. But I hope that's a, a, a good enough description. But basically, the increased pressure in the eye itself is doing damage to the the nerves in the back of the eye, and it can be irreversible if it goes on too long. Okay, another question with the eyes. When I get up in the morning, like it's real dark, uh-huh. and if I go turn the light on in the room, it takes I kind of like to stumble because it takes a long time for my eyes to make the adjustment for, for the light, from the darkness to the light. Would that have any association with the uh, glaucoma thing or cataracts I have? Probably not. Um, now, it's that's sort of an accentuation of sort of what normally has to happen. So, after since you're asleep at night, there's not going to be you know a light stimulation at the back of your retina. And um, once you, if you have a bright enough light right off the bat, your eye sort of has to get used to that. Um, and it, it can be a little bit painful when you first experience it. Same thing with, with getting adjusted to lower light conditions, and that takes a little bit longer. It actually takes a couple of hours. Uh, most people who are uh, familiar with uh, in the military, with military training, know that there are special lights like or green and red lights that you, you have at night that won't impair your night vision, but it can take up to two or three hours even your eyes to get to the point where they can adjust to the processing of the lower light levels. But yeah, if you if you shine a bright light at somebody uh, first thing in the morning, that that certainly can take you a little bit of time to get used to that. I don't think that's that's uh, can be tied to the glaucoma issue, and um, uh, with particularly as you described it. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Thank you for you- what you do. Yes, sir. Thank you, and uh, we appreciate you calling. If you missed calling us today, you can always email us, so please send those questions and comments to remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Shirley from Grenada. Good morning, Shirley. Yes. Uh, I have a question concerning a venous insufficiency. This is something venous. that I really don't understand. Yeah, venous, venous insufficiency. I'm supposed to be going to the doctor for ultrasound to uh-huh. see if I have venous insufficiency. But I'm gonna t- I want to tell you the story about what happened. I was sitting on the bed and was having a hot flash and reached for the ceiling fan, and all of a sudden my body just started jerking and reaching like I was having a, a seizure or something. Hmm. And um, and when it finished, I sat down on the bed and my leg, my knee area. Immediately start, you know, uh, swelling and got still sore and swollen, and I couldn't stand up on it. And uh, I'm just wondering, was the venous insufficiency have something to do with what happened to me? You think it could have been? I want you to explain to me. Sure. Um, usually, that's not the way that it presents. So, you know, there's there's two different. So, by venous insufficiency, we mean that. The veins, usually in the legs, in the lower legs, are not working appropriately. And over time, you know, our arteries, they have a higher pressure inside of them. And the arteries go from the heart to the rest of the body. And they help push that blood through there. They're much more more muscular. Um, They have a higher pressure. And you have the force of the heart beating 
that basically propels those out and your blood pressure to keep that blood flow going. And you can have problems in that. We call that arterial insufficiency or sometimes peripheral vascular disease. Uh, but those, that's a little bit different and it can present a little bit different if you have a, an insufficiency there. Now, the veins that we have, there's, there's usually two sets. So there's a deeper set that go, uh, that are deeper within our legs, and those are bigger veins. And then we have the surface veins, and those are the ones you can see. And uh, over time, all of those veins, the main way that they get blood back to the heart is through movement of the surrounding tissues. So when we walk, uh, when we move around, we contract the muscles that are around those veins, and it helps to pump that blood back up to our heart. So that doesn't have, it's a low pressure system, and it also relies on valves. So valves are, in, are at periodic points in those veins to help make sure blood flow doesn't back up and go backwards. And as we age, we lose a lot of that, uh, of how well those veins uh, work. And part of that is because the valves don't work as much. Then you get pooling in the tissue in those in those veins and it can uh you can have swelling in the tissues you can have a change of the skin color sometimes it can sort of look like a tan like you've been out in the sun a lot or you can have sort of bronzing or or maybe even a darker discoloration usually on the front part of your lower legs since you mentioned that this discoloration is it only at the leg or can it be on your face or neck other areas of the body? Usually only where that blood's going to pool, and it's usually like lower extremity. So that's it's usually lower extremity. And, and this, these are easy things to, to figure out because the, the Dopplers that you mentioned uh, can, can sort of tease that out. Normally, you just have the changes. You have swelling. You have changes in the skin color. Uh, and you might have some varicose veins. In other words, veins are enlarged on the surface of the skin. But the, what they'll do is they'll look for blood flow in those areas, and that's an easy test that you describe like an ultrasound. For arterial insufficiency, they do the same thing, but they're looking at the arteries themselves. So by what you described, it's not necessarily the symptoms of venous insufficiency, but there may be some other things that they're seeing that they want to check out with the ultrasound. But that is the, the easiest way to look for it, and uh, they can have some treatment had, for that. If I had had a, you don't think I had a stroke or something, do you? It doesn't uh, sound like it by what you described. It doesn't sound like it by what you described. Oh, Lord. Okay. Okay. But... Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about it at this point until you got the information. But again, this is an easy test to do, so I, I don't think you'd have to worry about it. And you're going to get the information back pretty quick. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers for calling in, as usual. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.